Oxford, AstraZeneca COVID vaccine, Pfizer vaccine, the Moderna vaccine, coronavirus vaccine, COVID vaccine, 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 vaccine. The vaccines are a rolling in. Given it's the word on everyone's lips at the moment, we thought we'd take some time out this week to examine vaccines and more specifically the coronavirus vaccine. There are a extraordinary 200 potential coronavirus vaccines in trials worldwide at the moment and here in the UK the first one has been approved made by US and German pharmaceutical companies Pfizer and BioNTech. Vaccines from AstraZeneca and Moderna have also achieved successful results in clinical trials and look like they'll follow with approval shortly. We'll be having a look today at how each of them will differ and how much they'll set us back financially. We're also going behind the scenes in the lab itself with Professor Catherine Green joining us from Oxford University. From the Investors Chronicle, I'm Megan Boxall. And I'm John Human, and welcome to Not Your Normal Finance Show. So, vaccine distribution has begun this week. Uh, is this the beginning of the end of COVID-19? No, definitely not. This is the beginning of the halfway point of COVID-19. Because to say that we're near the end of a virus is absurd because we are, the world has only ever wiped out one virus in history, and that was smallpox. And it took 200 years from the vaccine being first developed. So, not to sound too gloomy in the lead up to Christmas while everyone is celebrating this vaccine launch. No, this is not the beginning of the end, but it is the beginning of a new period, which is it is very good news. It's very exciting. The fact that we will be able to use this vaccine to help protect the vulnerable. Uh, the the word on the street is that it's going to be uh, elderly people, vulnerable people, people who work for health services. They are going to get the vaccine first. Um, and to be able to protect them is brilliant because it means hopefully that come spring, we will, the rest of us will be able to start getting back to a bit of normality because the people who we've all been protecting while we go into lockdown will have been protected by the vaccine. So yes, it's good news, but certainly not the beginning of the end. Will the vaccine be as efficacious as we perhaps hope it's going to be? It's very, very difficult to tell because the vaccine's trial, which is an interesting one, um... The vaccine, we shouldn't be too worried about the fact that the, this vaccine, the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines have re- produced results so quickly because it's a brand new way of developing a vaccine. As we've written about extensively in the last few weeks, the uh, the method that the vaccine has been created and the method of, of immunising people is a, it's a genetic way of doing things. You inject patients with a little bit of of genetic code it's called mrna and that stimulates a an immune response a very very targeted specific immune response and it doesn't mean that you are injecting patients with live cells which is what vaccines have been historically so we shouldn't be too surprised at this that the clinical trials have turned out great results very quickly but what we should be a bit surprised about is how um how quickly the regulators have made a decision on quite a small data sample. So the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are both they're both massive, massive trials, thirty thousand plus people. 
across a relatively broad age range, 18 to 65, I think, maybe even slightly older than that as well. So they have tested they've this vaccine a lot of people, but they haven't actually had data from a huge amount of people. And especially they haven't, they certainly haven't reported data from a huge amount of people yet, because not that many of the patients who have been injected either with a vaccine or the placebo have actually got coronavirus. So you can only tell if it works if you know that those people have been, or you assume those people have been exposed to coronavirus. The 95% efficacy, which Pfizer reported, was based on the 100-odd patients who had confirmed coronavirus. 95% of those had the placebo rather than the vaccine, which is how they've got to their their efficacy rate, which is good. It's, it's, it's an astonishingly good initial phase of study. But it is only raw data, and it's very, very unusual for a for regulators, and in this case it's the British regulators, the MHRA, to have made a decision on such a small data sample. Um, It's an interesting decision. I don't necessarily think it's the wrong decision. We know the vaccine's safe, so we don't need to worry about that. We don't need to worry about the fact that we're putting some nasty substance into people and it's not, it hasn't been properly safety tested. It's definitely been properly safety tested. But efficacy-wise, we're not 100% sure. And one group that it certainly hasn't been tested in is the vulnerable or the vulnerable people the people who are going to be getting the vaccine first the elderly those with compromised immune systems because either they're old or they have an illness the people who we are sheltering at the moment and that's significant because this vaccine works in the same way that any vaccine works in that it stimulates an immune response. But if the person's immune system isn't working properly, that immune response won't happen, either naturally or via a vaccine stimulation. Which means that the people who are being injected with the vaccine, it may not actually work that well for, which would be a problem, because in saying that we are protecting these people, it maybe turns out that they're not actually being protected. Um, There's also a big problem with actually getting this vaccine to people. So... mm. The Pfizer vaccine, as I understand it, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine needs to be stored at very, very low temperatures. And obviously that creates a logistical challenge. Mm -hmm. Getting people from care homes to actually be vaccinated uh, has... There's suggestions that that's going to be very difficult as well, because I think it needs two doses. They have to be taken 21 days apart, and they have to be done in certain places. So so it's actually getting this to people. It sounds like it's going to be an absolute nightmare yeah well especially at a time when these people are being kept away from everyone else so this is what i think is quite extraordinary about the fact and there were some news reports over the weekend that um the people who are going to be vaccinated are going to have to travel to get their vaccine that's absurd and twice. i mean yeah twice i i mean i'd like to think that's not true because at a time when everyone else is locking down and we're not allowed to go to restaurants and pubs and the theater and all these industries are dying we're going to be carting all our old people into a place where there are lots and lots of other old people and lots of health workers who may have come across people with coronavirus. I mean, that's absolutely absurd. So I'd like to think that's not going to happen. These, yeah, there are logistical problems, but Pfizer has attempted to work around that by creating a packaging solution, which means that the vaccine can be stored outside of these super duper freezers that go to minus 70 degrees it's kind of like a dry ice pack um and they can exist outside the freezer for for 10 days so hopefully that will that will help the situation and we can take the vaccine to the people rather than bring the people to the medical centers to get their vaccine um 
but yeah, it's a a difficult and expensive question. Yeah, I mean, talking of money, a lot of uh, investment has been made into these uh, vaccine development programs, some of, it, some of it coming from public money. Um, and to find out where some of that money has gone, we sent John Rogers, who's put this podcast together, to speak to Professor Catherine Green from Oxford University. So my name's Catherine Green. I head the Clinical Biomanufacturing Facility. So that's a small-scale GMP facility where we can make small batches of innovative medicines to use in first in human clinical trials. And how have you been involved in the AstraZeneca and Oxford collaboration? So right back at the beginning, right back in January, Sarah Gilbert, who's the lead scientist on this project, um, had contacted me to see if we would be able to make a small batch of the vaccine for use in clinical trials. And we had said, yes, we could. Um, And then as February progressed, it became clear we were going to have to do that extremely rapidly. So my team worked really hard to get the first batch of vaccine made that started the clinical trial program. And we also made the starting material. So before you make a clinical batch, you have to make the starting material. The analogy that we use is that's like the sourdough starter. So you've got to manufacture the sourdough starter and then that sourdough starter can go off into the world to be used to manufacture more batches of vaccine. So we made the sourdough starter. We used that in-house to make the first batch. And we have then shipped that out to AstraZeneca, um, who are now using that for global manufacturing supply. How did you manage to do it so quickly this time? A lot of talks been been had about, uh, yeah, it's taken less than a year almost. Um, yeah. And that's not normal at all. So how's it been so quick this year? Yeah, I mean, much less than a year. So Sarah gave us the DNA that um, is the genetic material for the vaccine towards the middle of February. And we had the vaccine produced and in clinical vials ready for the clinic by the beginning of April. So I I think that's certainly not been done before. The main reason was the availability of financing, I think, because we had underwrites from the university and we had or started to get the realisation that people would be able to provide us with the funding. Um, We didn't have to do the normal process of getting some results and then demonstrating to funders that it was likely to work and then get a bit of money and get more results and then you get more likelihood that it works until you get a bit more funding. We didn't have to go through that process. We were able to initiate everything at once, both the manufacturing and the initial work, do them in parallel with the risk that if if the vaccine failed, we would have wasted our efforts. But luckily the vaccine was successful, so all the effort that we put in at the beginning and the funding that was supplied at the beginning fed through to the very rapid deployment that we've been able to achieve. What does the funding uh, sort of tangibly go towards? Is it um, sort of equipment or is it is it paying people to sort of work around the clock? What, what does that money pay for? I mean, absolutely everything. So right at the beginning, you need to fund the scientists who are generating the constructs, who are coming in and working all weekends to, to do the hands-on work in the laboratory because it's quite labour-intensive at the beginning. Um, as a GMP facility, we have a lot of people that work in the background to make sure that our processes and our systems are compliant. So we have a lot of quality assurance and quality control checks. We spend a lot of money on testing to make sure that the vaccine is what we think it is and that we've produced it correctly. There's a lot of expensive equipment. Um, there's a lot of 
couriering, you have to move stuff around the world. And then when you get to large scales, you then do need to be able to support a lot of large scale equipment purchases in order to manufacture at large scale. But also clinical trials, running a clinical trial is very expensive. You need a whole team of people, project managers, nurses, clinicians, people to assemble the, the team that does the vaccination. And then a whole team of scientists that need to collect all the data, monitor and, and assay all the data and get the results out. So it's, it's hundreds and hundreds of people that are needed to get both the manufacturing and the clinical trial done. And you must be uh, delighted that the trials have proved pretty successful. Um, what's the sort of next step? Um, do you sort of hand over your work to AstraZeneca now and then they sort of make it happen on a large scale? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, we did that some time ago. So within the University of Oxford, it became clear relatively early on in this process that it was going to get too big for us to handle we know what we're doing when we're talking about early phase clinical trials we do that a lot and the clinical trials team are really expert and world leading and i can do small scale manufacturing but we don't have the capability to deal with large scale manufacturing or indeed just the logistics of it it gets very complicated when you're talking about millions of doses you need hundreds of thousands of glass vials you need shipments so as soon as astrazeneca came on board they they know about getting medicines to the world. So they have this level of expertise that just wasn't available within our team. So it's been a great learning curve for us to understand a bit about how that world works, which is not something we knew about before. We taught them a bit about how to make the vaccine and then they taught us a bit about how to deal with complicated global supply chains. Is that, a, is that collaboration normal at sort of early stages of vaccine development or, or is this kind of a completely new new region for it? I mean, that's right. So, I mean, full credit to them and to other pharma that stepped into this space very early on during the pandemic. I think the world did begin to realise that this was going to be a, a serious global problem you know, quite early on, end of February. Um, but obviously there was no evidence that we could make an effective vaccine at that point. So the AstraZeneca coming on board to partner with us was to some extent, I guess, a leap of faith for them. They had to um, see what we were doing, see we were taking a good, sensible approach um, and then commit to, to coming on board with this partnership. And at that time, none of us knew if, if the vaccine was going to be successful. So you wouldn't normally have a, a commercial entity coming on at that stage because of that risk. Normally, we as an academic team, well, not me, I don't run the clinical trials, yeah, but the, the scientists that designed the vaccine would need to show some evidence of it being effective before you would get a, a large-scale partner interested in that. But because of the global situation, people were coming on board to take that, you know, that, that finan make a financial commitment in advance of knowing if the product was actually going to be a good product. So there are three vaccines that we've been hearing a lot about recently. We have uh, the first one that we heard uh, about the trial results from, and which we've spoken about, which is the Pfizer-BioNTech uh, vaccine. Then there was one from Moderna, a US biotech company. And of course, we've got the AstraZeneca vaccine, which uh, Professor Green has been working on. Tell us what, what the difference between those, those three uh, vaccines are. So the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, um, as I said, are genetic vaccines they use uh, brand new technology mrna technology and it's it's really really exciting because not only does it mean that they can be produced very quickly it also means that they could actually be 
altered quite quickly if the virus mutates, which is another issue around this vaccine development. If we're producing a vaccine for this very specific strain of virus and then the virus mutates as the flu vaccine, Mm -hmm. as the flu virus does every single year, there is an issue with the vaccine, which is why with the flu, everyone has to be vaccinated every year. They have to get a new vaccine for every new strain of flu virus which comes around. So that's the good thing about Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. But there is a bad thing, as we talked about before, which is the temperature storage. And that's to do with the way the vaccine, the biochemistry of the vaccine is encased in a lipid or casing, which allows it to get into the cells very efficiently, very quickly. Lipid is a fat and it can, it's it's a good way of getting vaccines into the into the human body but to store lipids safely and so they don't crumble and release the genetic material inside they have to be stored at very very cold temperatures moderna's found a way of doing it not quite so cold still about minus 20 degrees which is definitely colder than your average freezer which means they they need specialist freezers, which you don't have in every old, any old hospital, any old medical center, the doctors, the GPs, the places that you would go to get a vaccine. And that does make these mRNA vaccines a little bit trickier. And there's also issues with the supply chain as well. The, the Pfizer vaccine is being developed in, so the European batches will be developed in a site in Belgium, obviously to ship them out all over Europe. It may take longer than the 10 days that the boxes that Pfizer has created for them are going to safely store them in. So that's slightly problematic too. We don't have planes that happily, readily carry vaccines at minus 70 degrees. It's a very, very specific part of the supply chain. Um, The AstraZeneca vaccine is different, though it can be stored at normal temperatures. It's a far more traditional vaccine. It uses a... It's, it does also use genetic material, but it is using that genetic material which has come from inside a different type of virus. It's, a, it's a, what's called an adenovirus, which is often used in vaccine development. It's come, in this case, it's come from a chimp. And there, this is more, there's more live cells in the AstraZeneca vaccine. It's a, so it's a slightly more traditional type of vaccine, which is why it can be stored at normal temperatures. The trial results from the AstraZeneca study are not quite as spectacular. They have had a weird dosage issue, the more they seem to have, where if two full doses are given, it's 62% effective. But if the first dose is half a dose, then it is 90% effective. This is what this raw data has shown. And people are struggling to explain that, which is potentially problematic and it may be a hiccup in the approval process. Astra has put its vaccine out for approval by the MHRA and the FDA in America but um, it's maybe not quite as straightforward as the Pfizer one which um, which has certainly pleased the regulators and they've approved it very very quickly. Yeah the, the interesting thing about these vaccines is that whilst they seem to be uh, good at preventing symptoms though it's not clear if they actually prevent you passing the disease on which is uh, a slightly odd odd thing. It is and it also isn't because it depends what these vaccines are going to be used for. Because if they're going to be used to try and create herd immunity, then, yeah, it's stupid. It just isn't... It's pointless to have a vaccine which doesn't prevent transmission. But 
that's not really what our vaccine is going to be used for because coronavirus, it's increasingly well understood, is a virus which doesn't cause horrific symptoms in the majority. It does obviously in some people, in especially people with underlying health conditions and the elderly. It also, if there is huge viral loading it's in uh, healthcare workers as well, people who are actually dealing with coronavirus patients on a daily basis, it can cause extremely horrendous effects for these patients. But it is very readily transmissible, which is actually not a bad thing in building natural herd immunity. It's why the world is slightly resistant to colds and the flu, because it's a it's a mild, I mean, there can be strains which are really, really awful, especially flu, but it is a readily transmissible disease. So what we're vaccinating against is actually what we need to protect against is the really, really horrendous symptoms. So actually, that's not necessarily a bad thing. But we shouldn't be using this vaccine as a prevent transmission because we just don't know whether it can do it yet all three studies have tested for symptomatic coronavirus not the actual coronavirus cells and the um and the antibodies which are produced after you've had coronavirus okay so um how it's used is important how much it costs you would imagine is quite important as well particularly to the um finances of the companies making them and there is some contention around this yeah so AstraZeneca has said it doesn't want to profit during the pandemic from this vaccine. It's doing this because it's a good pharmaceutical company and it wants to do the right thing. And it's charging cost price, which is between three and four dollars for its vaccines, which is great. But it also then begs the question, what next? What happens after the pandemic is over? Does the price get hiked as how do we get it into countries which don't have so much money to pay for vaccines where actually the rates of spread are enormous so african nations um south america i mean brazil has had potentially the worst outbreak of all countries it's where a lot of these vaccines have been studied but they're not gonna be spending loads and loads of money on the vaccine after the pandemic is over um the mRNA vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna are slightly more expensive. Pfizer has also said that it doesn't want to make money during the pandemic, but cost price of an mRNA vaccine is more. It's $20. And Moderna, which is a smaller pharmaceutical company, it has received a huge amount of money considering its size from the US government. It was the company at the heart of the Operation Warp Speed. Um, but... It wants to it wants to profit from its vaccine. It's a vaccine manufacturer. That's its vaccine pharmaceutical company. That's its whole purpose. It's actually never made money before. This may be the year that Moderna starts making money if it can get approval sooner rather than later. So it's charging thirty seven dollars. Um, the fact that the demand for this vaccine is extraordinarily high really doesn't means the price really doesn't matter for the business case for these companies they are going to get orders that's it like without doubt the problem is actually they're not going to be able to service the amount of orders they're going to get there are already so many orders for vaccines um i mean the british government has already spent 10 billion dollars 10 billion pounds pre-ordering even before the vaccines got approval they even before we got clinical trial results they pre-ordered vaccine from companies not just these three either they've pre-ordered from 
Johnson and Johnson, um, all sorts of companies, which is unheard of. It shows that the demand is there, which means that in normal times would have potentially been a huge money making scheme for pharmaceutical companies. But it's uh, it's pretty frowned upon for especially the big companies to be making money when everyone is desperate for something. So they're probably not going to just yet. And that shows actually in the difference in price between the what's being proposed for the coronavirus vaccine and other vaccines. I mean, the cheapest one is the flu vaccine made by Sanofi, and that's $20. Um, and the MMR vaccine, which obviously all kids have, well, a decreasing number of kids have in the UK because of people worried about what vaccines are, which is made by Merck, is between 50 and $75. So they're generally a bit more expensive than what's being charged here. And before we go, um, let's have a think about some of the companies in the sector, uh, particularly in the UK, where we focus our uh, investment coverage. Are pharmaceutical companies a good bet at this point, um, given where we are with that, uh, vaccine development and sort of the focus on healthcare more generally? I think it depends which pharmaceutical company it is. We can't pile them all together. There's obviously some companies, perhaps some of the better companies in the large cap pharma space, which haven't bothered going into the vaccine area at all because of the logistical problems around it, the fact that it's obviously quite a competitive space with 200 companies making vaccines. Um, so a company like Merck, for example, which hasn't had a particularly good year, considering it's one of America's most innovative pharmaceutical companies, its share price really hasn't done very much this year. So that actually looks like it might be quite an interesting place to to look to invest because it's staying relatively clear of the coronavirus situation and mean in the meantime we have plenty of other health issues to be looking at so that is uh that's what i'd say my top pick is astrazeneca is also a very innovative company and the fact that it has gone 100 percent into coronavirus and has been, it's never developed back vaccines before this isn't its area of expertise it's gone into coronavirus said we're doing this and we're going to manufacture we've got the capability to manufacture huge volumes we've teamed up with a amazing team at Oxford that's a really great thing that it's done it's great for PR it's good for the business as well then on the other hand we've got GSK which the share price is down 20% this year and I mean if GSK a company which actually makes most of its profits from vaccines can't thrive in a year where the whole world is looking for a vaccine when can it be a good company I've I've had a problem with GSK for a long time but it's dragging its feet and its inability to either capitalise on this opportunity or the other opportunities that are coming around this, the fact that we have now proven that we can use genetics for both preventative healthcare and for post-diagnostic treatment. And they're not doing that, and it's ridiculous. Did they not get involved in any vaccine? They are. They are. They're developing one um, with Sanofi, uh, the French company, and they said that they have a uh, a method which means that their vaccine is going to be more effective. You can use smaller doses, and you kind of boost the effectiveness of of a small dose vaccine, and which has worked extremely well for some of its other vaccines. They have a shingles vaccine called Shingrix, which has been one of the top selling products this year, but they haven't. They haven't really made much progress with the coronavirus vaccine. Not well, nowhere near as much progress as other companies have. And, I mean, the opportunity is still going to be there this time next year when GSK is expecting a little bit more news on its vaccine. But 
it's surprising that they haven't taken this opportunity more than more than they have done and yeah i think i think it's disappointing and i think it's i think it's one to steer clear of um despite the fact that maybe it's looking better value than AstraZeneca at the moment. Unless you're innov- innovating, you, you're not value, are you? Your, your share price can fall as much as you like, but unless there's a growth opportunity there, what's the point of buying? A, uh, a pretty uh, damning <laughs> indictment to end uh, this podcast on. Uh, thanks, Megan, um, for your, uh, your wisdom. You know a lot more about pharmaceuticals than you do about gaming. <laughs> <laughs> That is true. And you know a lot more than pharmaceuticals than I know about gaming <laughs> as well. Um, thanks again. Uh, thank you all for listening. That's all we've got time for this week, I'm afraid. But join us next week where we're going to be indulging in some Christmas shopping. Much more fun. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.